Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I am a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England, and I'll be talking to Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bonjour, bonjour. We've come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from the form vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. Personally, I've got a background in English literature and in the novel. As a student, I learned to think in terms of the great novel, often from the 19th or early 20th centuries, such as Middlemarch or Bleak House. I still read a lot of novels around 80 a year, but I don't think any longer that the novel is a repository of literary greatness. I've read many quite average novels and several great short stories. So my thesis, which may be a little controversial, is that today, Greatness in prose fiction is mainly to be found in the short story form. I don't know whether this is because the novel is a much more commercial genre or whether there is something in the short form that is particularly suited to capturing the flavour of today's miscellaneous and rapidly changing world. But at any rate, that thesis is really my motivation for wanting to create this podcast. But I don't think Sonia has quite the same idea, do you, do you Sonia? A little bit different, perhaps. Um, certainly, short fiction is where I go for virtuoso prose. And I must admit, I don't read novels. So exceptions tend to be research for short stories. Uh, novels have never really worked for me. And I have a slightly touchy relationship with poetry. But I've always been fascinated by short fiction. Uh, for me, it's the genre that comes the closest to lived experience. And my first wow moment with literature came quite late, really, from reading a short story by Catherine Mansfield, which is called Miss Brill. And it presents this banal little life, but also what's extraordinary there. So an everyday moment, very intensely lived. And I think this is something that short fiction does really well, beautifully crafting these pop-out moments. And this is why I read short fiction, for this joy of living intensely and exquisitely. And I really love the title you found for this podcast, Small Pleasures. I think it sums up perfectly the thrill of short fiction. Well, thank you. I certainly wanted to emphasise the pleasure of reading a really good short story. And though the form itself is short, the best ones contain a sense of space, of a whole world or a lived life inside them, like the one you mentioned by Catherine Mansfield. And that's partly what I mean by greatness. Anyway, we're going to begin this podcast series today with someone who is an indisputably great short story writer, the Canadian author Alice Munro. She has won many awards for her writing, including, of course, the Nobel Prize in 2013. Today, we're going to discuss a short story from her 1998 collection, The Love of a Good Woman, and the story is called The Children's Stay. Sonia, you agreed with me about this choice of story. Can you say why you liked it and what you respond to in it? Uh, what started me from the start is that it's quietly rebellious. It does things that you're not meant to do in short fiction. So the first line isn't grabby. It doesn't start in the midst of an action. And the story is really long, over 30 pages, I think. I'm quite geeky sometimes for short stories, and I like to count things. <laughs> so I counted the pages. 
Um, and I'm not even sure it could be very easily published or win a competition now if, if nobody knew it was the Monroe, even though it's startlingly beautiful. So this got me very curious and it's a demanding story. I, I had to puzzle over the last line, for example, on First Street. It's, it's complex and I feel like I'm never done reading it. Whenever I return, it gives me something new. Um, and there's a really subtle questioning of gender roles, for example, and really beautiful multi-layered references to other works. And actually, Livy, I know from Sevinars that you have this gift for going uh, lightly but deeply into things. And I would love to know your thoughts on myth in this story. Can you talk a little bit about that perhaps? So the myth is the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, and it's an example of catabasis, which in fiction refers to journeys to the underworld. So people who have made that journey include Demeter and Persephone, Gilgamesh, Hercules, Odysseus, and of course Orpheus. It's always a really dangerous journey. And in general, there are four reasons to go. As a test to retrieve something for love or to gain secret knowledge. And very often the character either takes something they shouldn't from the underworld or they lose something vital or essential. There's always a sense that something changes irrevocably in the course of this journey. Sometimes the journey is taken involuntarily, like Persephone, but more usually it's a particular kind of quest. Demeter, Gilgamesh, Orpheus all go looking for someone they love. Uh, I love this word. This is a new word for me. It's a is catabasis, that's right. Yeah, uh, catabasis. And that is certainly how I pronounce it, so we'll just go. <laughs> <laughs> it's brand new and I love it. Um, yeah, in Monroe Street, it plays a lot with this idea of looking for something and not looking at or refusing to see something. And what that something might be is one of the things that keeps us on our toes, right? Uh, Monroe presents us with this young mother called Pauline, who's cast as a leading lady in an amateur production of Jean Anouilh's play Eurydice. Um, so she'll be in a very visible position on stage, but she's not really seen because she's acting, she's performing a fiction. Um, and it's amdram, and this word amateur, it relates to love. Uh, An amateur is someone who does something for love. So I think that links straight back to what you were saying just now. Uh, and the play Eurydice is a modern day actress and Orphée, uh, Orpheus is a traveling musician. And Eurydice is attracted by Orphée's music. So she feels the call of the arts like Pauline who feels more alive when she's rehearsing the play. And like Pauline, Eurydice isn't perfect. She's been around, she's lived, she's loved. And she sees the ugly side of things, the harsh side of love, for example, she breaks off very, very brutally from an ex-lover. So she's quite realistic, but she loves Orphée truly as herself. And Orphée won't see this or accept this because he's looking for something ideal, something perfect. And Eurydice can't live up to this ideal, so she runs away and she's killed. And then, uh, as in the myth, her soul is retrieved on condition that Orphée doesn't look at her till morning. But the only way his perfect love can exist is in death and in eternity. So he looks and he kills her a second time. Yes, in Monroe's story, there's a section where Pauline and her husband Brian have a conversation about the play. And Pauline says definitely that Orphe kills Eurydice deliberately because she isn't perfect. And that's a twist on the myth. And you say that's found in 
the film? Is it found in both? I think you you know of both two films about this myth, do you? I know. Oh, no, but you've got me curious now. I'm thinking there must be another one. I know only one film. I know the, the play by Jean-Henri, which I read thanks to Monroe's story. Uh, and then a film uh, by Alain René, which is, it plays with like a mise en abîme. So it's uh, like a play in a play in a film. It's quite um, quite confusing that way. Um, and yeah, it plays a lot with the, the multi-referencing, a bit like Monroe and the... The tension you get from putting an ancient myth in the modern day. Okay, and is it so? Is it in the film or in the play that it seems to be Orphe's fault? Orphe's killing Eurydice deliberately because she's not perfect. I don't know if it's exactly a fault because it's quite subtle. It, it's in both because Alain René he takes the play and then. Um, he sets it up with several different Orphe and Eurydice. So you see several different, you hear the same words over and over again said by different people. And they take on this kind of cut out beauty. It's like a poem. You hear them inflected by each actor. And uh, there's known to be a couple, um, Sabine Azema, I think her name is, and Pierre Aditi, who are quite elderly when they're playing the role. Um, so there's death quite present through them, the, the decay of the body and so on. But because they're such stellar actors, there's great tenderness and you see all the innocence and freshness of love in their words. And sorry, so to answer your question, it's not exactly a fault. It's more that um, uh, like a playing of the tension between the realities of life, like duty and the fact that nobody is perfect, we're all human. And then this very idealistic sort of um, sublime thing that perhaps people are always looking for a little bit in the arts that Orpheus seems to promise um, and it's it's unselfish in that he goes to live with her afterwards <laughs> although he does have a rather tyrannical role in that it's true because it's it is as uh, they say in Monroe's story it's his choice and not Eurydice's choice. So that's so interesting because now I wish I knew those versions. I only know a kind of original version of the myth and she is obviously playing on that by making reference to these later versions of it, which is so interesting. Because um, I think she uses the myth in other ways very subtly, not in an obvious directly metaphorical way. So you have to work a little harder to see the parallels. So no one actually dies, for instance, spoiler alert. And the story doesn't actually take place in the underworld, does it? And I, I wondered if you see a relationship between the setting of the story and the theme. I do, yeah. It's, but as you say, I think it's complex um, because she sort of weaves these references throughout the story, doesn't she? Like at the beginning, there's something slightly sinister about the little walks she takes to escape from being with the family. She goes down the tunnel, the shadows, so on. Um, and certainly the way the, that the characters use the space, um, I'm thinking of the way the men use the space, it can be quite sinister also, with Jeffrey bolting the door always before they have their, their romantic and sexual encounters. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's strange. And there's a strange thing with confinement and open spaces as well, right? Yes, absolutely. I think there's a real play on that because in theory, the story is set on vacation and they go to somewhere that is quite open, it's near the sea. 
but actually there are more references to this interior world of the family and as you say to the, the walk that's like a little tunnel and to other spaces in which she is quite confined and one of the things that struck me about the early description of the landscape and the bit where they're trying to work out what the map says is that it's quite she says that it's inexact you know they look at the map and they can't agree on which features of the landscape are where and that in itself is kind of interesting to me because it's they're on unfamiliar terrain and I think the other thing about the setting is that Pauline the young wife is with her husband's family and there's barely any mention of her own family actually the first time I read the story I completely missed the mention of her own family. She does have a father and two much older sisters somewhere, but I only remembered that the second time around. So she's kind of really in the setting of Brian's family. And his father is always referred to as the grandfather. His mother is always Brian's mother or the grandmother, as if they are their roles as kind of set in stone. And there is something quite ancient about that because in ancient Greece, the tradition was that the young bride would go to her husband's family. And I, I really do think that this is a primitive interaction that occurs today. The husband's family will see her in terms of how good a wife she is, how good a mother. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. It, what's interesting about um, this link you're making with ancient Greece is that you can make the link um, well with the story but also with today's world you can go back and forth through the timeline and see this pattern holding all the way through and it's something that uh, Jean Anouil does in his play as well he has the parents set up to show the, the sort of gender role modeling um, and it inspires fear in Eurydice and Orphée and, and disgust even they don't want to to become that but at the same time, there is this notion of real life just sort of well, grinding people down. They're sort of modelled into these roles, and then it's very difficult to get out of that. And I think Monroe does something a bit the same. And you mentioned um, you mentioned Pauline's family. Am I right in thinking that her mother has died? Yes. And isn't that something of a tell that something... I don't know, that she's going to take a slightly different path or that she doesn't exactly fit into this very tidy setup of the, the grandfather, the grandmother and so on. I think that's true. I think you mentioned at one point the idea of she's trying to write her own script and that's so interesting. You know, she has one script written for her by the family and another by Geoffrey, the, the young lover who has cast her in the role of Eurydice. And she is going to try something different to write her own script, almost as if the quest is actually for the artist in herself, but then it's only achieved at the cost of phenomenal pain. And there's something about these journeys into the underworld that are always very, very painful, very um, dangerous, I think. Um, and you were saying that, um, yeah, often there's a link with the death. Is that right? That often somebody has to, the cost is a life. Yes. 
I think that is true. It's true of the Gilgamesh story. It's less true of the Demeter and Persephone story, but Demeter mourns and the whole world goes, starts to die. And until she can retrieve her daughter for just six months of the year. So, yeah, there is always this association with death, with something changing irrevocably. And certainly in this story, there is an association between the family and death because Brian and Pauline say to one another at some point, just picking up on your point about the film, that, well, I think it's Brian who says, I can imagine someone committing suicide because they don't want to turn into their parents, you know, something like that. And the idea that to go back for Pauline by the end of the story, to go back would be a kind of death that is definitely there. Um, is there a sense that she's sort of killed herself in a way, a, a sort of um, a self that she might have been? Well, you know, I think that is probably true because there is no going back, is there? She can't actually go back to being the wife and mother, having voluntarily done this thing, severed the connection. And yeah. that's what's so interesting about the trajectory of the story, because you see that the point of it is not the affair with Jeffrey. That is just a kind of stage on the journey in which she, she takes this major decision. Um, and I, I think uh, the idea of something irrevocable is expressed in the title. And when I, when I first read it, I remember thinking, okay, why that title? Because the title itself doesn't appear to relate to the myth. So it's only after you finish the story that you can um, see Perhaps what the title is. The title is, of course, "The Children Stay." Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant title, isn't it? Um, I think that gets the motor running for the story even before you've started to read, because it could almost be reassuring with that word "stay," but it sounds so like a threat. And then there's this reference to children, which touches so deep immediately. Um, and Monroe, she picks up the question really late in the story and then answers it another, I think it's another six pages late or something like that. Um, but because it's right there at the front in the title, it's sort of looming all the way through the story, isn't it? Uh, and it takes us to the emotional core of the story, to, to Pauline's bid to be free and to be her own self and the cost of this, right, the pain. Okay. That's exactly right. I think it's, um, it's it tells you what the emotional crux of the story is. And that emotional crux is a kind of agony, really. And I think one of the interesting things as well about this story is that in the original myth, the focus was almost entirely on Orpheus. It's his story. He is grieving for Eurydice. He takes this step of going into the underworld to look for her. He is told that he can have her back, but he mustn't look back when she's following him. So it's his story, really, and he is a great musician. Now, in The Children's Day, it is most definitely Pauline's story. So she twists that kind of gender role around entirely. And I think Monroe always has a lot to say about gender, but she's never predictable, which is a great achievement, really, considering that the period of her writing career covers the era of the growth of feminism. 
when everyone seemed to have something to say about gender. You know, it's hard to bring anything new to that debate, really. So do you think she brings anything new? Do you think she's saying something in particular about gender here in this story? I think, um, what, do you know what I like a lot is the way she, she doesn't exactly come out on who Orpheus is in the story. She leaves that really ambiguous. And Jeffrey, at the beginning, he seems to present a kind of uh, choice and option. Um, and it's not, even if you know the myth and you're looking for guidelines with that, because his, his name sounds like a tomb, so you make the link with Hades, perhaps. Um, and he's very sardonic and he, he chooses her because she's imperfect. He, he says, you know, you're not beautiful, so this is why I want you. And so he seems to be presenting a choice for her, but then in a strange way, either way, she seems to end up dead. You know, with the, with Brian, he seems to be like an Orpheus figure because he's so jolly like uh, Orphe in the play. Um, well, actually, that's then, true. I hadn't thought of that, Sonia, but at one point it says that Brian is more of an actor than Jeffrey because he's always playing a role in the classroom and in the family. Yeah. Mm. Certainly, certainly he comes very close to the character of Orphe in, uh, in the play of Eurydice. But then um, Monroe does this really clever thing of calculating the plot of the play onto her story. Um, so when in the play Eurydice, she goes out to get food at one point after she's run off with Orphe, she goes out to get food and then she runs off. And in Monroe's story, you have the same thing with uh, Pauline going out to get refreshments during the rehearsal of the play. And then she disappears on holiday. And so for me as a reader, that sort of unsettled me because I was quite comfortable with my reading of Jeffrey as some sort of Hades figure, and then I was no longer sure. I thought maybe he's Orphe. And then um, Jeffrey, I think he quotes Orphe as well at the end, once uh, once Pauline has run off with him. So he's taking on the role of Orphe. And yet the closing lines of the book suggest something entirely different, don't they? Um, I don't think we can quote without kind of bridging copyrights. I'm not going to do it, but it's like a <laughs> devastating ending. Yeah. You know, a really devastating ending. And I like what you say about the uncertainty about who actually Orfe is, and it's like the uncertainty of the landscape. So it's everything in this world is slightly uncertain. It doesn't go in the direction you expect it to. And yet underneath it, there is something of the inevitability of the myth and the journey into the underworld. Um, so you, what did you make of the ending? Because I think in the short story, it's particularly important, isn't it? In that compressed form to get the right ending. Yeah, well, for me, it was ambiguous. And I had to puzzle over it, as I say, when I first read it. Um, it wasn't immediately meaningful. Um, I got, I got that life had gone on, but with the shadow of this this terrible pain. There's a conversation between the the mother and the daughter, so Pauline and her daughter, and there's something quite restrained there, um, as if Pauline is keeping a lot back and she can no longer access the the mother role that might have been hers. 
but she seems to assume this cost because she has this uh, repeated denial of, uh, of Orpheus and she uses this word never, which suggests some kind of intent or determination. Um, so yeah, there's the sense that she's she's triumphed in that she's chosen a different path, one that wasn't necessarily open to her. Um, so she's, yeah, you use this word, rewriting the script, she's inventing a new way, um, but at, at great cost. But yeah, the fact that she's uh, denying the Orpheus role, it sort of leaves her free of the grip of this Eurydice role. That's what I got. But yeah, I did love the ending. I found it very powerful. It has this way of just rewriting the whole story in your head. I think it casts a different light on everything. That's exactly right. It is one of those endings that makes you reread the whole thing in your mind from the beginning. And it was also one of those moments on the last page where I actually caught my breath and actually those last three words, because it takes you back to the idea of something that cannot be undone. And to your points about seeing, because whatever she saw in him, it wasn't actually there. So these stories of catabasis are where I think we confront the most painful reality and usually survive, but not unchanged. And it, it also, the ending suggests to me why this short story isn't a novel when it contains enough material for one. There are so many novels about the breakup of a marriage, but why do you think this works better as a short story? Uh, well, I, I don't know if I could do a marriage breakup over over 200 pages. I'm not sure I could go there. It would it would be too much, either too tense, uh, just unbearable, or perhaps worse, boring. Well, but there are so many, many novels about marriage and marriage breakups. Um, it's a, from the 18th century on, it's a popular topic. But what I think Monroe does so skillfully is to suggest an entire novel in the elision, the three dots on the final page that suggests what's happened between and that paragraph about pain. And that's something that the great short story can do, I think, which is to suggest a novel or a whole world, a life lived in those gaps where the writer just chooses to leave out the, you know, the ongoing filling, the stop filling in the detail. In fact, yeah, and in a really intense effect. Yeah, I think yeah, you've put your finger on it as ever. It's um, it, I think it's also um, the this uh, thing about um, sorry about short stories being very demanding, in that it's the reader doing the work there, because it's the reader that has to read in between the lines. They have to pick up on all the cues and they have to do the work to invest the words with meaning. I think that's true. But it's a more satisfying read as a result. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think they always bear rereading. Certainly the best ones bear rereading and come up with something very different each time. Um, yeah. So, so Libby, I have a question for you. Um, if somebody was going to decide to write like Alice Munro, what pointers would you give? So I think Monroe is a really subversive, unsettling writer, as you said at the beginning. One thing I love about her work is that I'm never sure what direction she's going to take me in. This was true of the title story in this collection, which is also the first, 
and that's called The Love of a Good Woman, and where she begins with the red post box belonging to the optometrist, then takes you to a scene of boys playing, and only gradually do you join the dots between the different scenes into a kind of cumulative meaning. She is consummately skilled at structuring not only her stories, but her sentences and her paragraphs. When I first sat down to give this story a closer reading, I came up with 17 questions about the first two paragraphs, all to do with shifts in perspective and focus, register, formality and intimacy and tense. It's as if the reader is on shifting sands from the start and isn't allowed to settle into any one position. So reading Monroe is a very unsettling, unnerving, and often quietly devastating experience. So that's where you would start by attempting in subtle ways to displace the reader, to shift to the ground. So it's a great short story and I recommend that you all read it. So I think that is all for this first podcast, but we intend doing more. So watch this space. And for now, we will say goodbye from me. That's Livy and Sonia. A très bientôt from me.